Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And he, Jesus, went through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and, they, and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, as we closed our study last week, we looked at how Jesus, in announcing the kingdom of God to be at hand, how he cast out demons and healed many people. He was doing this to show that the kingdom of God was greater than the kingdom of Satan. Now, in doing our study, we came across the topic of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to quickly recap some of that part of our study tonight before we move on, since there's unfortunately much confusion on this issue. So go with me real quick to Mark chapter 3. Kind of, kind of recap a little bit of Jesus' teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because as, as you're about to see, when he was casting out these demons and showing that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan, this is their reaction to it. In Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by, by Beelzebub, and the, by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin, sins will be forgiven of the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Now, let me just give you a simple definition. It's, it's kind of sad that Satan has caused this truth on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to become so confusing to people, because it's actually pretty simple. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply rejecting the Holy Spirit's work and opening our eyes to the gospel. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this from the Scriptures. It's the Holy Spirit of God who opens our eyes to the truth. And it's this Holy Spirit of God who opens our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, and He's the one who draws us to believe in Jesus for salvation. Go to John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, look at verses 7 through 11. Jesus is talking to His disciples. In John chapter 16, verse 7. And he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, this is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning Judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, whenever Jesus was talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit's role, he was always doing it in a dual way. He was talking to his, the disciples who were going to be the believers about how the Holy Spirit is going to be in them and teach them and guide them. But he also talks here about the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not only going to come inside the believers and lead them and guide them and teach them, he's also going to come and speak to the world. And the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of their sin and their need of righteousness and the fact that there's a coming judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job. 
God uses the Spirit to speak to the world about who Jesus is. Go back to chapter 15 and look at one verse, verse 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about who? Me. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's job is to bear witness about Him. The Holy Spirit is to bring glory to the Father by bringing glory to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to show the world that Jesus is who He is. All right? So again, let me go back to our simple definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply rejecting the Holy Spirit's work in opening our eyes to the gospel. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the gospel and shows you the way to be saved and you say no, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a bunch of questions that come up. They'll be answered in just a little bit. I want you to also see, though, that when Jesus performed the miracles, He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there were many leaders of the Jews who knew what God, that God was doing what He was doing through Him, but for varying reasons, they would not believe. Listen closely. I'm going to show you scripturally that when Jesus did these miracles, showing that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan, there were many Jewish leaders and Jews who knew it was from God, yet they would not believe. Look closely at John chapter 3 again. We referenced it when I was with you last week. In John chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, does he say, I know or we know? Yeah, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know you're from God. Go over to John chapter 11. Jesus had just uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. And look at verses 45 through 48. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, we already know from John chapter 3 that they knew that what he was doing was from God. And now they've even admitted, if we let him keep doing these kind of miraculous signs, which they knew were from God, everyone's going to believe in him. But they didn't want that. They were attributing the work of God to Satan by siding with Satan when they saw the work of God. Does Satan want you to believe in Jesus? So when God opens your eyes to who Jesus is, when you choose to say no, you're siding with Satan instead of God. Keep reading. Go over to John chapter 12. Look at verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they're gaining, that we're gaining, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. All right, we'll stop there because I'm, I'm, I need to jump over a section to keep moving for where we need to go. But here we see in verses 17 through 19, again, they realize everyone's starting to believe in him. They're not excited about that. Go over in chapter 12 to verse 35. Jump over to verse 35. 
the section I skipped over was the section where the Greeks started to believe. They wanted to, you know, so God's drawing, oh, through the Spirit, He's opening the eyes of the, of the Gentiles. Look at verse 35. Though He had, uh, sorry, back up. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Before I go any further, don't miss this. They had seen these signs that he had done, and they still would not believe in him. Their choice. They did not believe. And then that fulfills scripture. Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? In other words, God's word has gone out into all the earth. Romans chapter 10, when we always say, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Keep reading in the next verses. It says, did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. Here Isaiah said, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's power was revealed to them. And when, even though it was revealed to them and they saw the miraculous signs and the power of God through the Spirit in the life of Jesus, they did not believe. Did they have a choice? Yes. But listen closely. There comes a point, though, and only God knows when that point is for all of us, where God shuts the door. If you've had your eyes open to the truth, there comes a point where God says, your opportunity is over. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. For again, in another place, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. By the way, what does Jesus say? If you don't confess me before my father, I won't confess you before my, I'm sorry, before men, I won't confess you before my, before my father. So here are some other people that believed. But they were, for lots of different reasons, this situation, they were concerned about how they would be accepted in the synagogue, afraid of man, and whether they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. And because of that, they wouldn't confess their faith. Even though they knew the truth, they rejected it for fear of man. Again, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just simply rejecting when the Spirit opens your eyes to the gospel of being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, thank God He's merciful. Some of you would say, well, the moment God opens my eyes, do I have to believe right then? I don't think the Bible teaches you have to choose right then or else you don't have another opportunity. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that he's not willing anyone to perish. He's patient. He's merciful. Actually, let me just take it from Paul's own words himself. Go to, go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a what? A blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Did Paul blaspheme for a while? Sure did. But God was merciful to him. Go to Matthew chapter 26. By the way, what I'm about to read to you from Matthew 26, prior to this, Peter has already said, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood hasn't opened your eyes. My Father's opened your eyes. Listen to Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them. He denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now here Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, Peter, for fear of man, said, I don't believe. I don't even know him. Never met the guy. By the way, Peter had already seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration at this point. He'd seen his glory. He'd heard God speak. He'd seen Moses and Elijah. Good thing Peter's not responsible for his sanctification. Is God merciful? But the Bible does say there comes a point where God says you've had the opportunity. You need to respond while you have the light. That's why the Bible in the book of Hebrews says respond while it's called today. That's why the Bible says today don't harden your hearts. Folks, we are not the ones to determine whether or not someone's got an opportunity to be saved anymore or whether or not the door's been shut for them. We need to share the gospel with everyone till the day they die. But wasn't Peter already saved in this script? He was, but he hadn't been sealed by the Spirit yet. He had made, he had made his decision and he had made his faith. He, he had man, was a man of faith. But let's be honest. Here's an evidence of someone who believed but would not confess it before men. What we just read about those Pharisees. The difference is the state you die in. The state you die in. Now, I believe that there are individuals that are still alive that biblically their opportunity has passed. And those are some of the most miserable people in the world because the door has been shut and they become even worse and worse and worse. But all I say to you is simply this. Don't let Satan cause the teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit become confusing to you. It's very simple. God's Spirit is the one who calls us to salvation. God's Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to who Jesus is. When God's opened your eyes to who Jesus is, respond. If you die after having seen and don't believe, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you were to go back and look at the teaching on that, which we're not going to take too, too much time to do, remember how Jesus said all sins will be forgiven, man? Every blaspheme, blasphemy will be forgiven, except the one that's not already covered. Let me explain what I mean by that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God says that God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Don't miss that. At the moment Jesus died on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. At that moment, he reconciled to God things on the earth, things above the earth, things under the earth, the scripture said. The gospel is not God's mad at you, but if you ask him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. The gospel is God loves you. He so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is God's already paid for your sins. God's already forgiven you of your sins. You now need to receive it. You understand? Actually, Jesus' death on the cross paid for all sin. It'll be forgiven. It's been forgiven by Jesus. Oh, there's only one sin that wasn't already covered by Jesus on the cross. You know what that is? It's when the Spirit opens your eyes to this truth and you say no. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All right, we good? Let's get into the Sermon on the Mount then. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Some of you are afraid to say no. Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, be, shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we're just going to stop. That's going to launch us into our beginning introduction on the Sermon on the Mount. We're now moving into the first of many of Jesus' lengthy discourses or teachings that are recorded in the book of Matthew. This one actually is going to last through chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount and this long discourse is three chapters long. All right? This is the one famously known, though, as the Sermon on the Mount. It's called this because Jesus ascended a mountain in Galilee to give this sermon. Go back to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. What crowds is it talking about? Hmm? What people? I'm trying to teach you context, context, context. What was the verse right before that? Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The previous verse tells us what the crowds were. Jesus had been too in his ministry, as you know, along the Sea of Galilee, gathering his disciples, beginning the ministry, healing people, and all this. Crowds were starting to come from everywhere, not just there in Galilee, but from Jerusalem and the other side of the Jordan and Judea. People were coming because they heard about what was going on. Jesus, seeing these crowds, actually does something interesting. He ascends this mountain, goes up on this mountain, and he sits down to teach. His disciples, again, don't think for a second that only 12 guys followed him. I've said this to you over and over. I'm going to remind you of it over and over. Jesus always had more than the 12. Always more than the 12. You want evidence of that? In Acts, when they had to replace Judas, they said, we need to choose someone that's been with us the whole time from his baptism until his ascension. There were two at least 
that had met that qualifications. There's always been more than the 12. When John Mark was arrested in the garden, or sorry, was grabbed in the garden and tried to be arrested, and he ran out of his clothes to get away, how come John Mark was there? He must have been in the upper room with them when they had the, the, the Last Supper. Luke chapter 8 says that there were women that traveled with them all the time, supporting them out of their own pockets. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the Bible says, upon hearing this, many of his disciples stopped following him. He turned to the twelve and said, Do you guys want to go? Folks, there's always more than the twelve disciples. There's always been more. Yet at the same time, he sees the crowds and he goes up onto this mountain for a couple of reasons. One, acoustically, you can speak to a big crowd there on the Sea of Galilee if you're up the hill and the wind is blowing down the hill to the water. They all would gather below him and his voice would carry very easily. Or other times you'll see him get in a boat, go out on the water and speak. And if the wind most likely was blowing at his back, then his sound of his voice would carry across the water and he could speak to crowds. But there's also another reason. Are you willing to follow? Or does he have to meet you on your requirements? Well, if he comes by here, I might listen. No, I'm going to go up there and talk. If you want to follow, come on. And it appears that his disciples were the ones that began to follow. But the Bible actually shows us. Go to the end of the chapter 7. Look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the crowds eventually followed, probably very soon after. His disciples followed, he, and they went and sat down as he taught, and the crowds came. By the end of the sermon, there's a lot of folks there. Now Jesus, again, sat down to teach, which is a very common thing for rabbis. If you look at all through the scriptures, rabbis would sit to teach. you know. And uh, again, that was a very common Jewish thing. Now, there is great debate over the purpose and the audience of this sermon. Now, I want to talk to you about that, because if you hear lots of teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to hear lots of different people's ideas on what Jesus was actually saying and who he was actually talking to. In other words, who was it really for is what people say. All right, let me say, let me put it to you in other words. What was Jesus really teaching and who was this teaching really for? Now, I believe the scriptures themselves will answer both of these questions very clearly. And we're going to try to answer these two questions. What specifically was Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? And who was it actually for? All right. Now, some people have said that Jesus' teaching here was him laying out a set of rules to follow or maxims to live by in order to enter the kingdom. In other words, Jesus' teaching was, if you do these things, you can enter the kingdom. Well, that would contradict what Jesus himself taught. By the way, do we enter the kingdom of God by what we do? No, actually, Jesus himself has laid out how you enter the kingdom. Let's go back and be reminded of it. Go look at George, John, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. He taught that in order to enter the kingdom, you had to repent. That was one of the first things you had to do, was repent to enter the kingdom. Not only did he say that you had to repent to enter the kingdom, he said in order for you to enter the kingdom, you had to have perfect righteousness. Not just righteousness, perfect righteousness. Go to chapter 5 of Matthew, look at verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 
Now, by the way, if you were a Jew and you heard Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, what, what did you just hear? That's not possible because these guys are nuts. They tithe on their mint and their cumin and they do everything perfectly. Jesus is about to show in the Sermon on the Mount that they don't. But they thought that was the highest level. I got to be more than that? I'm already dead because I, I already I can't do it. Oh, and look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does it feel, guys? Oh, dip. Yeah, I'm in trouble. Well, good. I hope you hear that and go, I can't do that. Good, that's the right response. That's the right response. But again, there's a lot of people out there that are teaching that Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was just giving us kind of maxims and how to live. And if you're this kind of a person, you'll be in the kingdom. No, no, no. That's not what he was saying. He's saying to enter the kingdom, you've got to repent. You've got to also have perfect righteousness. He also said, you can't enter the kingdom unless you have faith like a child. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So again, he's saying that we need to have faith like a child. Now, go with me to John chapter 3. Let's go back to that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that we looked at earlier when Nicodemus said, we know you're from God. In John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here Jesus lays this foundation with Nicodemus. And here Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. And Jesus then goes on and says, by the way, we've been sharing truth with you and you don't receive it. Did Nicodemus blaspheme the Holy Spirit? No, because by the time he died, he had received the work of the Spirit and he came to faith. 
at the cross. But at this point, Jesus said, you're not receiving what I've offered, what the Spirit's telling you about. But also at the same time, he says, look, in order to get into the kingdom, you've got to be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. So in order to be born again, Jesus says, we need to be born again how? Spiritually, by the Spirit. That's why this entering the kingdom is never going to be by how you live your life. That's of the flesh. That's you doing it. So anybody that tried to teach you, Jesus was teaching you how to live to be into the kingdom. No. No, actually, you're going to see that Jesus was using these teachings to show you that you cannot enter the kingdom on your own. You have to understand your lostness, your horrible spiritual condition to be able to enter the kingdom, your inability and your own strength to enter the kingdom. And you need to be able to repent and understand your need of repentance to turn from your old way and turn to the new way. You need to understand that the Bible says that you need to have perfect righteousness, which is not possible by you. But if you put your faith in the one who performed the perfect righteousness, the one who took on human form and he was put to death on our behalf and believe in him, the one, the son of man who's going to be lifted up and put on that cross, you put your faith in him. And like a child, simply say, I believe in Santa Claus, if you will. You understand what I'm saying? You had to have an attitude, but of course, thank the Lord Jesus is not like Santa Claus because Jesus is real. And if there's any kids in here that I've ruined it for you, I apologize. But you understand what I'm saying? A child is willing to believe in the tooth fairy, right? They have childlike faith. Jesus says, you have to get to that point where you trust what I say so much that you just believe me. And when you do, you are the, you entered into the kingdom. You are born again of the Spirit. Go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, verse 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We knew him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Anybody here in the kingdom? Thank God I'm in the kingdom. But it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with Jesus. Oh, by the way, I didn't figure that out because I'm smart. God opened my eyes. God, through his spirit, drew me. He showed me the truth. He gave me the ability to respond. And I said, yes, Lord, I believe. That's how you enter the kingdom. So Jesus could not have been teaching a set of rules to live by in order to enter the kingdom. One more passage that shows us that that couldn't be what he was teaching. In Romans chapter 3, look at verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the Bible's real clear. Can you get into heaven by obeying the law of God? 
No, no one's declared righteous in God's sight by obeying the law. Why? Because the law demands perfection, and none of us are able to keep it perfectly. You think you can? Well, listen to the Sermon on the Mount. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, hopefully you'll understand you can't. That's what Jesus is going to be doing in his sermon, showing us that you cannot. Now, even though the kingdom was offered to the Jews first, there are some say that this teaching, since we're at the beginning of the kingdom being offered, was only for the Jews and has nothing to do even for the church. There are some people, now I'm a dispensationalist. I believe the Bible teaches that there are dispensations and God worked in different ways in different times. The Bible says that. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past he spoke through the prophets, now he's speaking through his son. That's dispensationalist. All right, that's dispensationalism. You believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament? Guess what? You're a dispensationalist. But there's all different levels of dispensationalists. And there are ultra-dispensationalists that say that Jesus was offering the kingdom to the Jews since it was offered to the Jew first. And this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Christians don't even have to read it because it's not for us. It's not for the church. It just was for the Jews. And I'm going to show you scripturally that's not a correct interpretation either. Again, this would contradict what Jesus taught. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 5 through 13. Now when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the utter darkness in that place. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Here a Gentile comes up, a Roman centurion, and says, Lord, I want you to heal my, my servant. Jesus says, I'll, I'll come. He says, no, no, you don't need to come. You've you got authority. Just say it. i got authority, and I say things, and they happen. You, you just say it, and it'll happen. And Jesus said, I hadn't seen that kind of faith in Israel. And then he reminds them, and he says, hey, guys, don't, don't forget, um, the kingdom is not only going to be for the Jews. You, you want further evidence of that? Go to Luke chapter 4. Jesus said that in his hometown of Nazareth, and he almost got killed for it. They couldn't do it, because he'll die when it's time. But in Luke chapter 4, look at verse 22 and following. He had just uh, read the scripture prophecy about, you know, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today, the prophecy from Isaiah 61 about the coming Messiah. And it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that they were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did to Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the Jewish ones, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they could throw him down to the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. By the way, 
this just hit me just now. You know what's also interesting? If you've ever studied the Jewish practices about the scapegoat, did you know that there were two goats and one was to be sacrificed for the sins of the people and another one was the sins of the, the Jews were to be put on that one and they were to be led out into the wilderness and pushed off a cliff. Jesus fulfilled both goats, by the way. But here they tried to push him off the cliff, but at one time. But what did he say that got him so mad? Hey, God loves the Gentiles just as much as you. Don't think just because you're a Jew, you're automatically in. So to say that this message was only for the Jews would be incorrect. Actually, go to Matthew chapter 4 again. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verses 25, verse 25 to 5, 1. Matthew 4, verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now we'd already talked about this. The crowds came from where? Oh, everywhere. They came from Galilee. They came from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. By the way, if you do a little study, you'll find the Decapolis especially was a major Gentile stronghold. This crowd that heard Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount weren't just Jews. They were Jews and Gentiles. This message is for everyone. So obviously the message is for all who would enter the kingdom, both Jew and Gentile. Now, some say that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't specifically lay out what one must believe in order to be saved or believe and do in order to be saved, that it more clearly describes what the life of one looks like who is saved. And that's partially true. That's partially true. I'm going to say it again. Some people say the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really specifically lay out what one must believe and do in order to be saved. It more clearly describes the life of what, what life of one looks like who is saved. And we're going to deal with more on that in just a bit. But I want to deal with that whole concept that the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really tell you how to be saved. It just tells you what the life of one who is saved looks like. And yes, the Sermon on the Mount does show you what the life of one who, looks like is, who is saved looks like. But I believe that in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're willing to listen, there are pictures of how. Go with me real quick to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus, at the end of his sermon, I believe gives an altar call, if you will. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So here just Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, or the narrow door, if you will. Go with me to John chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 21. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, or the gate, if you will, of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Oh, you Gentiles, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Do you see how it's all tying together here? Do you see how the scriptures are all coming together? Jesus is showing them, look, I am the gate. Enter by the narrow gate. I'm the gate. And how you do that is you believe in me. You come to me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man is going to be lifted up. And all who look to him will be saved. You believe in me. I'm going to lay my life down for you. As again, all these things were pointing to Jesus throughout history, throughout the Jewish the, the, the sacrificial system, and all these things were pointing to Jesus. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount does give you, if you're willing to listen, the explanation of how to be saved. At the end of it, oh, there's more. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of God. But who? Who are the ones that are going to enter the kingdom of God? The ones who what? The ones who do the will of the Father. Well, that makes a, a very important question now, right? What's the will of the Father? Well, go to John chapter 6. You got it. You got it. Go to John chapter 6. The, the answer is there in the scriptures. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 6. Look at verses 28 through 35. Then they said to him, they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's the will of God? What does he want us to do? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Keep reading. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? In other words, do you want us to believe in you? Give us a sign. What work do you perform? By the way, we're hungry. Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So folks, does the Sermon on the Mount tell us how to be saved? I believe it does if you're willing to listen. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. I'm not going to go into this in detail. But then he says in verses 24 and following, to build their house on the what? 
Who's the rock? <laughs> Do you understand? It's all there. It's all there. Now, yes, the Sermon on the Mount, as you're going to see, is a teaching that explains what the life of a saved person actually looks like. Someone who's actually going to be in the kingdom, you're going to see what their life looks like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. You're going to also see it's being used to show them that they're not in the kingdom, even though they thought they were because they thought they were Jewish and they were doing the best they could to keep the law. He's going to show them you're not able to keep the law because you think the law is this. I'm going to show you that it actually means more than that, and you're not even close to that. And you're going to see it's used to get them to the point where they say, help, I'm in trouble. Good. Here's how you're saved. You go through that narrow gate on the gate. You do the will of God, and this is the will of God. Believe in the one that he sent. You build your house on the rock. I'm the rock. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Sermon on the Mount is pretty cool. When you understand that it was preached to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And as I'm going to show you in time we have left tonight, it actually still applies to the church. Even though this sermon in Matthew 5-7 through was given to the Jews and the Gentiles, and even though its purpose is to prepare people's hearts for entering the kingdom by faith, there is still much here in this message for those of us who are in the church. Those of us who have already entered a portion of the kingdom, if you will, by faith. There's much here for us. And I'm going to take the time real quickly in the 15 minutes, actually 14 minutes that we have left, I'm going to show you, if you're willing to go with me pretty quickly, that the Sermon on the Mount, the, passage, the section we just read, verses 1 through 12, parallels perfectly with the New Testament teaching for the church. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, that blessed are the poor in spirit. Correct? Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 4. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, the scripture says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Here's in this teaching to the women, don't dress yourselves up at church so that everybody notices you. You need to adorn yourself with the gentle, quiet spirit, the poor in spirit. As you're going to see, it means there's a lot in that topic of the poor in spirit. I'll understand you're spiritually bankrupt. But it's also being gentle, humble. It's not about me, it's about you. It's an element of denying yourself. But isn't that how we're supposed to live at all times? That's for the church, folks. It's not just for the Jews and the kingdom of God. Oh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? By the way, is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? Talking to Christians, he's talking about the spirit. The spirit dwells in us. Yeah, he's talking to believers. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and what? Mourn, and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And that attitude of grieving over our sin, mourning over our sin, should still continue for those of us who are in the church. It's an example. It's an evidence of someone who's saved. Oh, by the way, isn't that an encouragement to at the same time? Anybody you still sin? Does anybody like it? I don't. I still do it. I don't like it when I do. But that's an evidence of someone that's in the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over their sin. The Bible says in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek or the gentle. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. The Bible says that because of what Jesus has done for us and how He's given us mercy and He's given us this salvation, not because of anything we've done, we have no reason to be proud. We should be gentle people and we shouldn't be looking to have arguments and dissensions. By the way, one of the things, you may not like what's going on in your church, but the way in which you deal with it will show whether or not the Spirit of God's in control in your life, whether or not you're one of these kingdom people. And over the years, I've watched so many people not like the music or not like this or not like that, and they are cantankerous until they get their way. The Bible says, if you are a child of God, that is sin, and it should never be. But if I don't do something, then it'll never get changed. What if it doesn't? Paul actually wrote to the church in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where they were suing each other, and he then said this. He said, so what if you're wronged? The Bible says we're to be gentle. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, these are evidence of someone who's really saved. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6 of Matthew chapter 5. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. The Bible says we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. I'm reading it. It doesn't make sense because I'm in 2 Peter. I'll be right with you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And it's by His wounds you have been healed. By the way, again, now you see the context of by His wounds you've been healed. It's spiritually. Does He heal physically? Yes. But don't 
claim that verse that says, by his wounds you're healed, then that means you'll never be sick and you should always be healed. That's not always the case. But look again, we're to live for what? Righteousness. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Romans 6, go to Romans chapter 6, good verses 12 through 13. Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body and make you obey its passions. Do not present your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who strive for righteousness, how do you get righteousness? Through Jesus Christ, and how do you get daily righteousness in the areas that you're struggling with? You lay yourself before the Lord. You hunger and thirst for it. You don't try to get it. You don't try to do better. That's not hungering and thirst for righteousness and being filled. Hungering and thirst for righteousness says, Lord, I can't be saved without you. Would you please give it? I can't live righteously apart from you living through me today, but I want to offer myself to you. I'm going to say no to whatever this is that's tempting me and say yes to you. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is what we're supposed to be doing on a daily basis, you'll actually start living better. And it won't be you. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 7 of chapter 5, go to Jude. Verses 17 through 23. Jude, verses 17 through 23. You're getting so much better. No one's asking me what chapter anymore. I love that. Jude, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there'll be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying uh, in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, say, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Is the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount just for the Jews or those who are going to enter the kingdom and the millennial kingdom, or is it also for the church? It's also for us. You see the parallel all through. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart. Philippians 4.8, you know this. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Go to 1 Peter. You're over there in Jude. Just back up a couple of books to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 22. 1 Peter, and I'll go to 1 Peter with you this time. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from what? Pure heart. Man, all of a sudden, this Sermon on the Mount sure sounds like Jesus was talking to the church. He's talking to all of us. Blessed are the peacemakers. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. I think we're going to do it. I think we're going to get it done before, the, before 8 o'clock. I think we're going to make it. Finish strong, because I'm going to share something with you. When we get to the end, I'm going to share something with you that blow, is going to blow your mind. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for what? Peace with everyone and for the holiness without, with, without which no one will see the Lord. We're to strive for peace. Romans, sorry. Yeah, we already did that one. Sorry, let's jump down to the next one. Blessed are the... Um, now, let's do one more. Blessed are the peacemakers. Go to James chapter 3. Let me show you one more. You're just in Hebrews. Jump over to James 3. Look at verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers is for us too. Blessed are the persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Last one. Matthew 5.12 says, Great is your reward in heaven. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, Great is our reward in heaven. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, where? Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So is the Sermon on the Mount just for the Jews or only in the Millennial Kingdom? No, it's all of us. But the Sermon on the Mount shows us what the real saved person who's in the kingdom looks like. And the only way you get there is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, let me encourage you with something. When I finished this study, I told Becky, I said, I think I got way too much stuff. I don't think we're going to get it all done. Because I had nine pages of notes, and I actually sat down and counted all the scriptures we looked at. You may want to take a guess at how many scriptures we looked at tonight. 48. You did good. I love you. We'll see you next week.